welcome to The Sacred. This is a podcast about how we might be able to engage with people who are different from us and even disagree better. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation with the wonderful Sally Phillips. If you don't know her, Sally is an actress and comic known for her roles in Alan Partridge, Smack the Pony, Bridget Jones, Veep, Claire in the Community, and you can currently hear her on Radio 4 in the Museum of Curiosities. Last year, she presented the documentary A World Without Down Syndrome for the BBC, starring her son Ollie, who has Downs. Since then, she's been a vocal advocate for the value of people with Down Syndrome and has raised concerns that many people are terminating fetuses with Down Syndrome unnecessarily because they have an overly negative view of what life might look like. We spoke about the trade-offs she makes in her work life, her peripatetic childhood, why it's so hard to talk about balancing a woman's right to choose with disability rights, and the personal cost of seeking to build bridges across difference. I've been a massive fan of Sally since I watched the first series of Smack the Pony when I was 15, so I'm very relieved to report that she is just as lovely and thoughtful in person as on screen, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Sally, I'm going to kick off with the big hard question um, that uh, underlies a lot of the philosophy of this podcast about getting people thinking deeply and a bit more personally about the things very close to them um, that are with us when we engage with each other in public, but not always on the surface. Do you know what your sacred values are or what you hold sacred? I just feel I need some clarification. What exactly What exactly do you mean by sacred? I, mean, I think that's something that a lot of us are a bit unclear about these days. Yeah, so in the context of how we engage in public life, I think, um, so for example, in, an, in the debate about abortion, uh, there are two different sacred values coming up against each other. One is kind of a, women, a woman's ability to be autonomous over her own body and her own life choices. And the other is uh, this this other life, potential life, whatever you want to call it, that's in the mix. And they both hold those two things deeply sacred. And those are two very powerful moral values. Um, But because they're not starting from the same starting point, it's very difficult to talk. So some of the people on the podcast have talked about intellectual integrity. Some of them have talked about the value of uh, healthy human relationships. Some people have talked about uh, nation or ideas of nation, a sense of rootedness and community as being sacred. It's really, if someone... Aside from your family, obviously, because let's hope we won't sell our families. If someone offered you money to lay down that principle or to go against that value, you wouldn't only not do it. You'd be a little bit disgusted that they even thought that you might. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there's, there are a few things, but obviously, I'm you know I'm a single parent, and I'm constantly being required to test that. Um, you know, integrity is is important to me, but I did reach. You know, I never used to do adverts, and then I ended up single parenting three boys. And thinking, well, at this moment in time, I just need to be home with the kids. So my integrity seems, you know, in this area seems of less worth than my presence in the family home. So I will do that voiceover for X, Y or Z or um, I did a laughing cow cheese commercial. (laughs) The ironies of which were not lost upon the laughing cow herself. Uh, Yeah. So there's lots of those things, I suppose. um, I don't, I, in terms of work choices, uh, I don't like things that 
are I, I won't do things that are profoundly uh negative or cynical about the human condition, I think. So I'm always looking for things that are uh optimistic or worth a shot. Um and uh, so that I guess that's important to me. And I, you know, I'm a Christian and I, I won't do things that are uh I suppose I will do things that are lightly blasphemous, but <laughs> things that are, you know, promoting the works of uh, Satan, Prince of Lies. I would, I would, I suppose I'd, you know, generally try and avoid that for money. Yeah. So there's a, yeah, those things. And, um, I'd love to press you a little bit because it was a beautiful thing you said that you know, things that are cynical or, um, negative about the human condition unpack a bit the kind of implicit belief behind that because it sounds like you have quite a strong sense of the human well, condition I, I and it comes things up. things that are totally nihilistic. Yeah. When, when, because I always go, why, why make this? Why make this film? Why are we making this? Um, why making this television series? And I think that um, not enough people think about the, st- the meaning of the stories they're telling. Um, obviously they do in drama. They do in drama a lot, but I, I think, you know, as we make cheaper and cheaper, faster and faster telly, we don't always think of the, you know, what the end feeling is that you're leaving human beings with in their homes, you know, that you're going into someone's home and you're leaving a, a message, whether or not you're aware of it. So I try to think about what the message of the thing is. And I think it's okay not to have a message, but I think if you have an accidentally... um you know, commit suicide because everything's pointless kind of message. I'd rather not do that if my finances permit, as I've already, yeah. <laughs> it's already explained. Yeah. Oh, so for example, I suppose an example would be, I got asked to do a, um, a true drama, a true. It was a drama about a, a, it was for ITV and it was about a woman, a foreign woman who had uh, ripped off loads of men and, um, you know, exploited them sexually and financially. And I kind of thought that I, you, when you ask the question, why this, why now? You go, well, I think this might cause problems, this particular film right now, in that we're, you know, very divided. We've got issues about the way people, you know, people trying to uh, cut foreign aid, issues about how we feel about refugees. And overall, I would prefer to be someone who is building bridges, not piers or walls. And so um, I chose not to do that, even though apparently I bore a striking physical resemblance to the woman in question, to the criminal woman in question. <laughs> was that during your middle European phase? My middle, no, yeah. Well, yes, I, yes, no. She wasn't middle European. I think she was uh, Spanish or something, but yeah. I have been enjoying, as research for this, watching your wonderful array of European accents. So maybe we can... Uh... Yeah, thank you. Well, my dad worked for British Airways. So um, whereas some people have very good, you know, Barry accents and, you know, Euro- English accents, my English accents are a bit ropey, but my foreign accents are second to none. They really are. Finnish Prime Minister on Veep is particularly extraordinary. Um, I'd love to wind back a bit uh, to give the listeners a bit more of a sense of you. So tell me, uh, we think about the personal and the world of ideas and how they interact. Was there a religious or non-religious or philosophical or spiritual background to your childhood when the young Sally was running around, I presume, entertaining people, making people laugh? What was in the air? Well, my mother was a teacher. And um, so I guess she was always asking why. And um, she had the philosophy that if you had a brightest child you should 
never, <laughs> never let them end the questioning. So just keep on asking. It was relentless. It's like the opposite of me with my three-year-old at the moment. Oh, why, why, why? Right, yes. I don't know. Exactly. So that was my mother. So I suppose she did... Um, bring us up to question absolutely everything and to challenge absolutely everything and to have a, I, I used to say healthy disrespectful authority, but I'm beginning to think it's like rather, you know, uh, perverse questioning of authority uh, all the time. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So I think some balance is needed there, but yeah. So I, I suppose we were always, always questioning things. And then we were living abroad. So moving country every year and a half, so you're always placing yourself, you know, relating to new things. So discovering yourself through difference. So I suppose my first, uh, the first thing I do intellectually is look for the opposite and look at the relationship between the thing and the thing it isn't. You know what I mean? Uh, how was that emotionally as you developed as a child, that constant uprooting and rerouting? Well, as a child, it was completely fine. I really loved it. it made me feel very special and um, made our family extremely close because we were a team. Um, but then if, as you grow up, you realise it's left you with some issues. I mean, one of which is, you know, never sorting out any problems because you just move country. So if you fall out with somebody, then um, that's that's that. That's, that's it, done, forever. And so, yeah, I've had to sort that out and... Um, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's obvious issues and there's a whole uh, movement now. It's third culture kids where you're brought up in a country that's not your parents' country of origin. But I, I mean, there's more and more of us now who had that upbringing and I'm beginning to put roots. I mean, it's ridiculous it's taken this long, but I do now feel quite English and rooted to where I live. And um, Having kids helps with that, I think. Having kids does help with that, yeah. But also I'm just uh, feeling attached to the Thames. It's a kind of, it's, a, it's quite a thing, the Thames, yeah. you know. There's a, there's a personality or a spirit to it, maybe. Yeah, well, I, I mean, who knows about spirits, but certainly they used to believe that, didn't they? I love the um, taking the uh, speedboat. Well, my boys also love taking the, the rib boat up and down the Thames, seeing, so it feels like you're seeing London inside out or something. And even those uh, canal boats up from uh, Little Venice up to Regent's Park yeah, and Camden. Yeah, and you see all the, there's all these posh houses in Primrose Hill, but you see the, the backs of them, these, and they're like King Louis' domain in, in the Jungle Book, all these sort of overgrown gardens sloping into very, very green water. Yeah. And these sort of, I don't know, it feels like you're seeing the houses without the knickers on or something. That's a horrible thing to say, sorry. But like with their trousers off. <laughs> Christian podcast. But, you know, like people on, you know, I don't know, it just feels, uh, I don't know, it feels interesting. Secret London. I was really interested by what you said about defining yourself in relation to difference. Uh, I want to ask how you feel we're doing in our public conversations, you know, there's a, a clear kind of sociological analysis that we are getting more different. You know, 50 years ago, we believed and belonged and behaved with some likelihood in the same way that the person living next to us did. Um, and that's still true for some parts of the country, but for most parts of the country and particularly for cities like London, uh, it's really unlikely that we either believe or belong or behave in the same way that our neighbour does and certainly not the person down the road and certainly not the person that we encounter on social media. We are just getting more different. There is a richness um, of diversity growing. And I think we're in a season as a society of trying to work out how to handle that. Um, are you optimistic or pessimistic about how we are engaging across difference? I mean, it's interesting you say that because my impression was that we are, uh, that one of the effects of the unquestioning adoption of utilitarianism by government and by 
companies is that there's a great pressure to uh, become the same. And that actually, whereas 100 years ago, we used to be rewarded for being exceptional. Now we are rewarded for being the same. And so in you see that in the school system, that um, children with special educational needs at both ends of the spectrum are suffering, uh, being excluded for bad behaviour at both ends of the spectrum, that it's, it's just becoming narrower and narrower and narrower. Health, I mean, once personalised medicine comes in, which is uh, pretty inevitable, I'd say, because we can now sequence the human genome from uh, before birth. Once governments get hold of that information, which they are currently doing, because when you go for a prenatal screen, they take your DNA and... Uh, and the DNA of the unborn child, that data is anonymized in inverted commas, and uh, then sold back to government. So government will then get an idea of what the majority health picture is going to be. And I think they're going to invest less and less in rarer. And, and what is going to qualify as rare? You know, if, um, I, do, I don't know, I just, I think that uh, there's a very strong m- move to punish anything that is not the same. I mean, even something like a Fitbit, I think, is kind to uh, average us out. I mean, 10,000 steps is a completely random number, and it's shown it's not actually terribly helpful. And Fitbits don't actually uh, result in, don't, don't have positive results for a majority of people. They also distance them from interacting with their neighbours, make them obsessed. I mean, you have people running up and down on the spot in the kitchen at 10 o'clock at night rather than talking to their partner. You have people who wake up in the morning, their first thought is how much, how much, what quality sleep did I have? We're just um, turning ourselves into seeing ourselves entirely differently as um, uh, groups of units of measure. Mm. And, um, and then there becomes a, a normal and an abnormal and the idea of normal is shrinking. That's my concern. That's a pretty convincing concern. Uh, so some of our listeners will be uh, utilitarian. Some of them will be very familiar with the concept of utilitarianism and some people will either just sort of vaguely know the word, but no. Well, obviously there's many different types of utilitarianism, but I think, you know, overall this is, um, it's been, uh, you know, the idea of, it sounds good, doesn't it? Um, the, the greatest good for the greatest number, but um, there's a, a serious downside to that. Um, so it sounds great until you're the one who doesn't qualify for a transplant yeah. or whatever it happens to be at that time yeah. or an education or, or, hu- or human rights. In fact, I mean, some of the more extreme utilitarians, as you know, they're called, they call themselves the transhumanists and they're debating. I mean, it's, a, it's one of the biggest questions of our age. Like what is a human? What is a person? It's coming up in AI and, you know, obviously here. So Peter Singer, Julian Savalescu have this idea of, um, personhood and obviously because they're smart and they value intelligence over all other human characteristics they uh you you only get to qualify as a person you can be a human but you don't qualify as a person unless you can do certain things that they regard as as valuable Mm. and um uh, obviously those of us in the disability community feel very strongly that this needs to be challenged they need to be held to account because these are the people who are speaking at Davos and they're taken extremely seriously by governments in a way that we are not. It's kind of an interesting thing that when you're speaking from personal experience, your view is automatically discounted as emotional. I'd love to hear more about your experience of that, really, because um, you, you've you been in the public eye for a long time, but uh, generally as a 
a comic or comic actress? How, what's your <laughs> what's your uh, preferred moniker? Oh, I don't, I don't know what I am anymore. I'm, I'm lost. I have no idea what I am. An actress will do. We had uh, Pippa Evans on uh, early on, uh, who's a good friend who runs the Sunday Assembly, um, who I think of as a comedian, uh, but she wanted to be called an improviser because she feels that sums up all her attitude to life and the work she does at Sunday Assembly and the uh, the comedy that she does. She's it, it's her it, improvisation in some ways is sacred to her as a philosophy of life. Um, so I always like to check uh, before I uh, how people like to self describe. I do like I do like improvising, but I feel um, worried that people then think I haven't done the necessary preparation. <laughs> That's just my life. Um, uh, so you were uh, famously in uh, in Alan Partridge and in Smack the Pony, which was a massive high point uh, of my teenage years, um, and in Bridget Jones and, in, and various other things. And it's only in the last few years that you have been publicly involved in some of these um, ethical discussions, really, about what is a human, what is a good life, what do we value? What was the run up to that? And was it a difficult decision to become someone who was engaged in that alongside your uh, your acting career? Yeah. It was a difficult decision. Um, it was a very slow, uh, very slow process, and there were lots of um, steps along the way. And I don't really know which ones to tell you, but I suppose early on, I had a realization. I was swinging Ollie. I was teaching Ollie to crawl, and I was swinging him along the floor with a hand towel under his stomach, and we were the pair of us laughing like drains. Um, Whereas, of course, most children learn to crawl on their own. And then we got the bus and we were surrounded by mothers complaining about how their kids were into everything. And they were really properly harassed and kids under the sink getting the bleach and all the rest of it. And I thought, gosh, I I think I am enjoying this quite a lot more than they are. And that was the um, first realisation that I kind of had been sold a, a bit of a lie. Everybody up to that point had behaved as if the most tragic thing on earth had happened to me and that my life was going to be ruined. And um, yeah, and I think it was a realisation that we were very, we were very, very happy. I mean, he's got the most, has always had the most infectious smile and adorable laugh and is very caring. And I mean, there's all kinds of, I mean, you could say from a spiritual perspective, and I, and I did start to think then, from a spiritual perspective, in you know, in the, in the world, I've got first from Oxford, but spiritually, I'm very dense. I mean, I, it takes me. I, I still don't really understand the cross. Uh, I would say I feel you know the the atonement. I find I find I find pretty tricky. You know, <laughs> incarnation. I'm good on that. I like, but the you know, I, I don't really get it. Whereas I think Ollie really does get it on a very profound level, and so I feel like he's advanced. Um, spiritually. And I feel that with quite a few of my friends with Down syndrome, that they have a a humility and a spiritual perception, a wisdom. And I'm not just saying this, I I genuinely have seen it, that uh, that I don't have. And most of the people I know don't have. And um, anyway, so I, I started to I started to think, oh, this is, you know, we've been fed rubbish. You know, the, the pregnancy books all talk about Down syndrome like it's the worst case scenario. And it really isn't the worst case scenario. And then I started voicing The Undatables, which is a Channel 4 show. Which is wonderful. Which, um, well, I think it's wonderful. Some of the people in the disability community have issues with it. Obviously, the title is poor. But again, I started to see that. And I saw all the, it's, it's where people with um, uh, physical and, and learning disabilities uh, help to find love. And I started to notice that as a majority, a majority of the stars of that show were thinking about love as a verb, uh, love as 
uh, acts that you perform for other people. And just over and over again, I thought, you know, the people on these shows are so much, I'm going to say better for want of another word, but I just much prefer this viewpoint to that that you see on a show like Take Me Out, where it's like, I want this, I want that, I want the other. Yeah. Are you hot enough? Are you thin enough? Or even that, what's that show where they, they, they pick each other based on, they pick genitals first. And you just go, I mean, that's just so obviously the wrong way around. And then the irony that, you know, these people who are seeing other humans as humans are the ones that we are investing in developing screening techniques to screen them out, to prevent their their birth. It just started to become more and more, I mean, the irony started to become more and more painful. Um, and at this point, uh, the NIPT test was discovered. So that's the non-invasive prenatal test. It shouldn't really be called non-invasive because that implies that it is a swap with an amniocentesis, which is invasive. Whereas in fact, it's, it's the first time that big business has become involved in population screens and they've kind of missold it. That's been recognised by the Nuffield Council of Bioethics. So actually what it is, it's a second tier screen that you do in addition to the screens we already have. So the maternal age plus uh, the normal blood tests. And it takes, it can find uh, fetal DNA in the mother's, from the mother's blood. And um, and from that, it gives you a probability. It's not diagnostic. Um, and on, an, on a population group that have already been identified by the other tests as being high chance, it then is 97, 98% accurate. But if you were to do it on everybody, like on a, on a young woman, it would probably be only about 50, 60% accurate. So it's been really missold mm-hmm. as a, a swap for non-invasive and as 99% accurate. Neither of those are true. Anyway, so um, the question was coming up, should the government uh, sponsor this? And it also became apparent that all the money that was supposedly being spent on Down syndrome health medical research was being spent on this test. So it was of no benefit to the Down syndrome community whatsoever. It was purely money spent on Down syndrome was being spent on identifying them, identifying them before birth. For what purpose? I mean, there's no uh, therapies that can be delivered at this stage. They may well, well be in the future, but at the moment, the only thing that can happen is that the uh, the uh, baby or fetus, whatever you prefer to call it, would be terminated. And um, at this point, I was asked to do a documentary um, by a company that were a bit immoral. And so I, uh, I, I said no to that one, but started working out what a real documentary would look like. A real documentary, like a sort of more honest documentary would look like. And um, And at that stage, I had no intention of including my children but again, it just became apparent as we started to make it that I couldn't stand up and say these things and ask other people to put their families on the line without doing the same. And I was very frightened that it was going to be disastrous, but actually ended up being um, very positive for Ollie because he's been in a mainstream school. He's got lots of typically developing uh, friends, but he didn't really know his community. So he went from feeling very negative about Down syndrome to feeling really proud of it because he met lots of actors and dancers and, you know, working people who had Down syndrome and he now says, I like my Down syndrome. I'm great at dancing. I'm a good friend and I'm fantastic at cleaning. So, you know, it wasn't as bad as I feared. 
And but the, the ironic thing about documentaries, I'm just talking much too much. But anyway, is that you think that I thought I'll make the documentary and that'll be that. So I thought it would be that would be the end of it. I'd just say what I had to say and, and move on. But in making the documentary for a very brief period, you become fantastically useful because you have a lot of information that's all going to go out of date. But, um, you know, my Twitter feed and my Facebook uh, page became meeting places for people with opposing views on this subject. So it, it became kind of useful. And um, yeah, so I, I think for a limited period, I'm, I'm useful on this subject. And then I will go back to my go back under my rock. We're going to take a quick break to have a catch up with the Theos team. Welcome. Well, don't adjust your headpieces because Elizabeth has not suddenly got a much deeper voice. Nick Spencer is here to talk to Hannah Rich about, well, not Grace Project, which is what Hannah is working with us specifically on at the moment, but actually Redemption. And specifically, Redemption with a film called Ladybird. Hannah, you blogged about Ladybird recently, calling it perhaps the most theological film you've watched in quite some time. Why is that? Um, well, I think for me, it felt a little bit like. Um a little bit like spiritual therapy to go to go to see the film. It's the story of Christine, um, also known as Lady Bird, who's a teenage girl growing up in, in Sacramento in the early 2000s. And it tells the story of her relationship with her mother um, and with, with her family more generally, but also her relationship, I think, with, with faith, with the church um, and with religion, which she's grown up with, which she's inherited to some extent, but which uh, throughout the film is, is redeemed as something that she, she chooses for her own. There's a hint of the prodigal daughter about it, isn't there? Um, there is a little bit. I think it, it would be too too straightforward to say that it's a, a contemporary telling of the prodigal son or something like that. But I think there is definitely hints of, of that story there. I think where it differs from the biblical or the traditional story of the prodigal son is it focuses on the necessity of the, the part where she goes away from the things. I think when you're um, often when we explore the story of the prodigal son, it focuses on this joyful moment at the end of the story and the loving father who's there to welcome him home at the end. But we don't talk a lot about how maybe it was necessary for the for the prodigal son to go away in order to experience the joy of coming home or in order to discover actually why he loved his home in the first place or why it was his home in the first place. So I think that um, that gap between the, the going away and the coming home is where is where Ladybird sits. And I think that's what makes it so powerful. You talk a lot in your blog about how the film plays with these ideas of what you inherit and what you own, or rather what you inherit and what you make your own. And you say quite powerfully that in one sense, you can't help but inherit a great deal in your life. That's what being human is. But at the same time, you also need to own it. You also need to feel as if it's yours. Un unpack that a bit for us. Well, I think there's a lot of things throughout the film that are um, just part of Lady Bird's life because she's grown up with them, whether that is um, American culture or whether that is Catholic school culture or her relationship with her parents or um, just her, her family life more generally. And I think uh, she begins by being quite, quite teenage and quite angry about those things in the way that a lot of us are as teenagers. But as the film goes on, she, she becomes more affectionate towards, of them, towards them. And I think that's encapsulated by a scene where she's talking to one of the nuns who's one of her teachers um, about an essay she's written about Sacramento, which is this place where she's grown up, this place she's she's hated and can't wait to get away from. Um, but the nun points out that actually rather than, than being angry about it, she's actually written about it quite affectionately, even without realising that that's what she's done. 
Um, and I think that's kind of symbolic of the, the journey of actually coming to love these things that, that she's grown up with that were maybe part of her life without her even realising it. In the way that many of us as teenagers just resent everything that we've ever known. Um, actually, there is some some value in those things, even if we throw them out with the, with the bathwater for a while. You went to go and sit with a friend, didn't you? You said who, who wasn't a Catholic and or rather wasn't a Christian in any way, shape or form, didn't have a Christian upbringing. And they were left, if not entirely cold by the film, they were perplexed by the depth of your reaction, which they didn't share. Is it the kind of film that only really resonates if you've got a kind of a pre-existing vocabulary of faith, redemption, that kind of thing? I'm not sure that's something I could I could say for definite, really. I mean, I was fascinated when we came out of this film and I was um, very much shell-shocked by um, what, as I said, it felt a little bit like therapy. It felt a little bit like being, being beaten up emotionally as perhaps I would how I would describe it. And I turned to her and said, oh, that was amazing. And she was like, oh, it was, it was a good story, um, but wasn't in any way as, as moved as I was. And it took me, you know, a few days afterwards, I was still processing the, the things of the film and the, the things that I'd seen. Um, so that did make me me wonder if perhaps my my reaction to the film was a, a result of the things that I have grown up with, um, as with Ladybird in the film, the things that um, perhaps I've, have made me who I am or I have inherited um, in the same way that the story of the film suggests. Just before we close, Pulling the lens back a bit, so to speak, an appropriate metaphor, and I guess this is a conversation question which we should also be addressing to our colleague Nathan, who is who is probably the, the, the biggest film buff in the Theos team. But I saw um, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri recently. It's not a film about God in any way, shape or form, but I found profound theological messages in there about hatred and the need to forgive. And this is obviously in a theological register. I saw over Christmas for the first time The Railway Man, which was, a, I thought, a profound film, again, about judgment and, and redemption. I wonder whether we, for all that we have, quote-unquote, lost our religion, lost our faith as a, as, as a society, or we are unfamiliar with it, whether cinema, great stories are inexorably drawn to these themes that, if you just lift the lid slightly, are actually profoundly theological. Um, I think that's that's definitely true. Um, maybe that's because those are the things we bring to the film in, in the same way that um, the friend that, that I went with who didn't have that kind of back catalogue of theological reflection didn't really see that in, in Ladybird in the way that I did. Perhaps it would be the same, you know, someone else seeing three billboards might not draw the same conclusions that you did. Um, but there's a lovely moment near the start of the film um, as Lady Bird and her mother are sitting in a car and they finish listening to this audiobook of um, The Grapes of Wrath and her mum suggests that they should sit with what they've heard rather than rushing on to the next thing or putting something else on the radio um, or finding something else to entertain themselves with. And I think that in the same way that like there's that awed silence after a really good sermon or, or something similar. As the credits rolled, I wanted to sit as well with what I'd heard and let that sink in rather than hurrying on to the next bit of life. Obviously, as whenever we talk about some of these things that are very um, personal and potentially painful, uh, not everyone has gone, well, yes, Sally Phillips, of course you're right, um, and, and moved on. There's been a, a quite a lot of... Um, Agro. Good, good word, backlash or response to it. You know, a lot of op-eds um, saying everything from, you know, well, of course you can handle it because you are uh, have the money to have some help or whatever, mm. and, and Ollie's high-functioning, high is that... that yeah, might she be isn't high-functioning. Okay. 
Okay, that, and it may not be even be the, the the most useful word. I mean, there's basically what happens: you scratch the surface, and all the ableist attitudes come out. So one argument is that um, you can only handle a child with a disability if you're wealthy. So um, there's two ways of taking that one apart. One is: um, are we then saying that all the difficulties are solved by adequate social support? Because if we are, then we you got your answer. We could we could do that as a society. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, you could you could go into it. The the other thing is, um, oh, I don't know. I mean, it, it, there were so many different. Uh, but as you say, as you said at the beginning, there's so many different um, things that people hold sacred. And what you have here is a what's it called? Where two tides meet, where the sea meets the river. Is it brackish water? Or is it what is that? That you know what I mean? Anyway, you've got two these two currents hitting yeah. each other, and you have feminism. Um, so at the moment. Uh, we have a situation where um, women's choice is absolutely is is winning on every uh, in every encounter. So women, we have um, obviously abortion is legal f- uh, up till twenty four weeks for social reasons, social and psychological reasons. But then with Down syndrome, you are allowed to terminate up to and including labour. And you, we also have on. The NHS state, you know, the the most up to date uh, screens available. So we have just added this additional layer of screen. So um, we have. I feel like people with Down syndrome are caught in a pincer grip between, and we we also have austerity. So you're getting to the stage where a benign parent might well decide that life with Down syndrome is not livable. It's not possible. It's just too hard and terminating is too easy. So I think what we need to start doing is being a bit more honest about, um, you aware of Nick Rose and the work governing the soul? Well, go, you know, let's stop pretending that government don't shape our choices. So this is not a true choice. This is not a true choice, is it? This is a government making it incredibly easy for you to terminate, offering you absolutely everything you could possibly need to terminate. And yet there's no pathway of support for you if you choose to continue the pregnancy. There's been inadequate or misinformation about what uh, having Down syndrome in the 21st century actually means. You find that the only charity that uh, supports women, uh, the only NHS-backed charity to support women after a diagnosis, actually, I mean, we, I just heard this the other day and I'm so appalled. Um, they, A woman who then went on to terminate has has told us that, uh, that she was told, they told her not to contact the Down Syndrome Association because they said that the Down Syndrome Association were overly positive about Down Syndrome. And they also told her um, that people who had the babies uh only did that because they were frightened of terminating. So you've got incredible amount of, and, and that's just not true. I mean, it just is not true. If you look on um, the Twitter hashtag, well dancing, WDSD18, and that's all the videos that our community are making for World Down Syndrome Day. We love our children. You know, we, lo- we we are delighted and blessed by our children. And there are difficulties. But again, you know, with the Calpol generation, we think that anything that is hard is worthless. I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? A time when we know that when we say no pain, no gain about going to the gym. I mean, we've forgotten that for the rest of life. Yeah, people with Down syndrome um, create communities around them in a way that few other people do. Um, they, you know, they, I mean, there's all kinds of ways of, uh, 
you know, if you think that it's important to use fewer um, resources, people with Down syndrome do that. If you think it's important to uh, be forgiving and humble, people with Down syndrome generally are more forgiving and humbler than other people. They also bring great things out of other people. People who want to be helpful but are low confidence, they feel, uh, I want to see this with other friends of mine with disabilities as well. I mean, Professor Tom Shakespeare is always telling me that as he goes round, um, as he goes around, he's um, he has a chondroplasia and he's in a wheelchair. Um, but he says, you know, a lot of the time, of course, you get um, people being rude and, you know, I think people with disabilities are great revealers of character in others. And um, he says that he he encounters so much love and so much kindness from people as he goes about. And I see that with Ollie. It's like a wake of kindness, not because Ollie is an angel, because Ollie's terribly behaved, but, you know, at the moment, a lot of the time. <laughs> but people around him uh, are fantastically nice. I mean, he gives them an opportunity to be very, very nice. And I think, you know, acts of beauty, acts of kindness linger in the air. One of the criticisms that uh, I've seen written about your work is, uh, well, particularly in, in regard to the, the documentary, was not mentioning the fact that you're a Christian in the documentary. And it feels to me abortion is a very difficult subject to talk about anyway because uh, it is uh, painful, it's often personal. We know the statistics, lots of women will have had an abortion, lots of women want the option um, to have an abortion. Um, uh, and it, it's difficult to talk about that even on its own because... And with all moral questions, whenever you raise the possibility that there is a right or wrong, someone's going to feel judged because you are implying that their choice was wrong. Um, and when you couple the potential of pe people feeling judged with the possibility of religion being in the mix, it can yeah. it can just raise the stakes. Well, firstly, with the documentary, it was about neither Christianity nor abortion. So really, I wanted to unmask um, the way the state was um, herding people towards the choice of abortion. So I am pro-choice, so I am pro-people having a choice. And I feel that what we have at the moment is not uh, a choice in the information's being withheld. And I feel it's also a situation where women are being double punished. So the state make it very difficult to you have to be a very courageous person to choose you know and a very courageous person to choose to keep uh, Down syndrome pregnancy without support and without social support as the so-called welfare state is being dismantled and there's you know insufficient speech and language therapy and all these things are, are being taken away brick by brick so I really wanted to uh, show that we do not have choice um, and uh and I don't, I think in that my faith has given me a yearning for social justice and a belief that we are all equal. Um, it, it sort of foregrounded the documentary. But I think what people were saying when they said she should have said she was a Christian is that they were saying she should have said that she's pro-life, which... Um, I, I actually broadly, well, I align with the Church of England on this one in that they say that all abortion is tragic because it's uh, putting one uh, uh, human life above another. But I do think that there are situations, and you've heard of these terrible stories coming out of Ireland, um, that there are situations where it, it honestly is necessary. And um, so, uh, yeah, so then we come to a really interesting area. 
And I think that we really need women with disabilities to help us think this through. So we have a clash between disability human rights, the human rights of people with disabilities and the rights of women. And it's uh, unlike us. I mean, people who have privilege don't like to give it up. (laughs) But we have a situation where at the moment a grave injustice is being committed against people with disabilities as far as I can see it. I mean, you have lots of smart people listen to this and I would really like, I did say this to Synod, I would really, really welcome the smart people of the world's religions thinking this through properly. Um, Because I feel that the way we've discussed this up till now has got us nowhere. Professor Tom Shakespeare started um, highlighting problems with the way we were implementing screening as early in papers as early as 1989. And yet the the discussion, as far as I can see, just hasn't moved on. The number of voices involved in the debate has uh, proliferated and got more strident, but uh, really... We're in exactly the same situation now. We've got FASP, the Fetal Anomaly Screening Programme, that are now including some people who have family members with Down syndrome, which they never did. But they're also including people or or focus groups of people who have terminated because their child had Down syndrome. And they may have terminated on misinformation or pressure, as we know. So those two voices are just cancelling each other out. So I really feel that we need a new way of, of discussing this here. And, um, I, you know, I'd like to see two things. I would like to see uh, people not going insane whenever the word abortion is mentioned. I'd like to see people being prepared to acknowledge that the great wisdom traditions of the world might have something to add rather than the idea that anyone with any form of spirituality is, is crazy and believes in fairies. Um, the thing that I spend a lot of time talking to Christians about is... Uh, you know, I would happily call myself a feminist, a feminist deeply conflicted about abortion because it does feel like I'm holding two yeah. equally important sacred values inside myself. Um, but I am often spending a lot of time to Christian, talking to Christians about how for women, uh, for feminists, for those who, who are pro-choice, it is... Um, it is a moral position. It is not a kind of individualised apathy towards the moral question. It is the goodness of a woman's bodily autonomy or um, the, the freedom of not having these negative consequences that we know unwanted pregnancies impose on women for the rest of their life. Um, and d- g- trying to help them into the em- empathetic place of really feeling that. And then with my atheist friends trying to say, it's not that these these people are monsters, patriarchal monsters who want to send women back to the kitchen and shackle them to a labour ward. There is a, there is a genuine moral question there. And just... I think there are some of those. Th- there's some of those on both sides. You know, we, are, we have obviously got Fruit Loops uh, on both ends of things. But uh, it- I mean, I think, I think in a way, talking about abortion, we... Sorry to interrupt you there, but, um, you know, if we think about why is it such a terrible thing for a woman to have a child you know at the moment you it would it completely derails your whole life your partners run off then they don't you lose your job I mean let's look at some of those things as well let's not just talk about let's not just talk about um choice. I mean, let's talk about the wider societal context. And the other thing, the other thing I wanted to mention is that it occurred it, I, I, in this argument, I've definitely come across people who are, I mean, there are these interesting distinctions coming in, aren't there? You've got some very wise uh, Christians saying, um, you can't just be pro-birth. Like there's people who are just pro-birth, they want the child born at all costs, but don't want to care for that child afterwards. And there's also people who are pro-abortion, people who love abortion, love 
the effects of abortion and that it's liberated women, people who really don't see any difference between um, contraception and abortion, and I really do. You have the Greningen Protocol in, in Holland where... Um, euthanasia of neonates is allowed up to 90 days when uh, the disability hasn't been diagnosed. I mean, I think that the the argument is slightly factoring. And in a way, these are quite helpful words. Pro-abortion and pro-birth are quite helpful words for us, I think. It helps to clarify because if you just say pro I mean, on the documentary, I mean, people said I was a Christian, I should have said so. But of course, all you know, nothing, you never do anything on your own. And we were a team, so a team of three of us. Claire Richards, who's an atheist, was the director, and Emma Loach, the producer, had had a medical termination. So the three of us together made, we spanned all views. I mean, actually, we didn't because I'm not pro-life. And we also didn't speak to anyone at all who was pro-life. That was quite interesting to me that we were not allowed. You were being so careful not to go there. I was not allowed to speak to people with pro-life views. The only person with a pro-life view we spoke to was... um, Karen Gaffney, who has Down syndrome herself, she's a Catholic who has Down syndrome. So she was kind of allowed from the editorial perspective. So actually, the the censorship was entirely going the other way. Yeah. So everybody who appeared on that documentary was pro, pro choice. Yeah. And um, and so I was so surprised. I mean, one of the women in the documentary then came out the night before the program went out to say, "Don't watch it." It's a uh, anti-choice, and she now has this position that. Um, the discussion is unhelpful for women who want to terminate. And so it becomes apparent that she's not actually pro-choice, she's pro-abortion because she is against women having more information because she thinks that when you have more information, it makes it harder for you to terminate. So these kind of uh, gradations Mm. are kind of interesting. They're more than interesting. They're actually quite useful intellectually. So you can be pro-choice but not pro-abortion. You can be pro-life... Really, but, not uh, but their whole life and not just pro-birth. Yeah. So the, this concept of sacred values are, are originally um, I read in an anthropologist called Scott Atran talking about the Israel-Palestine conflict. And what he said was the way that you help build bridges across clashing sacred values is empathy. So, for example, you're not going to persuade a Palestinian to give up their land by giving them more and more money. But you, if you, if you apologise for an atrocity, you are acknowledging something deeply emotional to them and one of their sacred values, and then they're more likely to engage with you. So there is something, I think, quite deep in human beings, whoever the other is, whoever the enemy is, if they take a moment to acknowledge your sacred values and the potential for that being not not kind of dominating all the other sacred values, but at least a valid sacred value, tying myself in knots here, um, then that can rapidly um, cool down the temperature of a debate because someone feels seen and they feel heard. And then they're much more likely to come to the table and 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 really listen to what the other person is saying rather than being kicked into this defensive fight or flight. So have you found empathy? I, I, I see you and I perceive you as naturally being quite empathic. Have you found it a tool to cross um, where, where you're encountering someone who disagrees with you? I mean, that's definitely the only way forward. Um, that's definitely the only way forward. But of course, it's hard when you're talking about um, an issue that it, you were talking essentially about the lives of my son and his peer group and people not being allowed. I mean, it, it's a very obvious statement of not valuing uh, the lives of people with Down syndrome. In, in, in a majority of cases. If it's a wanted baby that is then not wanted because it has Down syndrome, um, of course there are social, uh, particular social situations that make that hard and all the rest of it. But, I mean, it is, you know, it is, it does cost. 
I, I feel that, um, but you're totally right. That's the only way forward. And, and, um, peace always costs. I was lucky enough to go to a conference on, um, the Northern Ireland peace process, um, with people like Jonathan Powell speaking. And what I took away from that, I mean, I didn't go to it because I was going to make this documentary. I wasn't going to make the documentary at the time, but over the years I I went, gosh, that was very um, fortunate that I went, that I did go and hear that said. Um, And the thing that was most apparent from that was that um, the people who bring about the peace will usually become alienated from their own communities. Um, and and that's that's the cost because just to cross the no man's land to to keep to keep crossing the lake um, you're regarded as a traitor and um, and I kept to be honest I kept expecting that to happen to me with the Down syndrome community but they're just such a I think our our young people really uh, bring so much love into our lives that um, they have actually been great but we do of course have this schism in the middle of us about uh, you know between those who are pro-choice who, who who are pro-choice who want more information given to women in to enable them to make a better choice and those who are pro-life and our young people are really psychologically damaged by this debate. So there's a young woman called Charlie Fine who just believes that 99% of the British population want her dead and she wants to move to Ireland because what she reads is, and she even reads, you know, she, she takes parents standing up for choice and more information as, um, you know, them acknowledging, them saying that they don't believe that she believes that people should have a choice about whether or not she exists. So we, it is a very, very painful subject for us and we have been very wounded. Well, tell me a bit about your journey with that. How have you nourished yourself as you do stand in the gap between these different communities and these different perspectives and seek to cross the lake and, and mediate and persuade that is a, a very high cost for that emotionally and personally? What has helped you keep doing it and keep doing it with such grace and humour and not, not just... F- like flipping out and kicking back? Well, I, I don't think I am doing that anymore. I think I did while I was doing the documentary and it did cost and I did have a lot of prayer, I did pray a lot. and But I also went in very optimistic at the beginning of the documentary. There was a lot to play for. The government hadn't yet decided that NIPT, that they were going to pay for it and roll it out. And I think I have got quite cynical since then. So although there were huge calls for an ethical review and an acknowledgement that the National Screening Committee hadn't done due diligence and hadn't included uh, people with Down syndrome's opinions. Um, The government still rolled out NOPT before the Nuffield Council of Bioethics had produced their report. And they not only did it, they did it on a Saturday, they announced it on a Saturday via The Guardian the day after the number one manufacturer of the tests had had their AGM. And you can now see that David Cameron is a consultant for this company. He's just been banned from lobbying, hasn't he, because of but, it? But only for three months, because then it's then it's two years. And you just go, this is wheels within wheels within wheels. This is so depressing. And if, let's be honest, I mean, it's a lot easier to just st- be in a position of no, to be a, an activist who just says no, than someone brokering peace. But I think in a way, you know, my documentary, because it did, um, it did alienate, it did alienate some groups. So I don't think I'm the person who can do that anymore. I don't think I'm the person who can make peace anymore. So we're really hoping, um, you know, people like Louise Bryant, Professor Louise Bryant, who's on the Fetal Anomaly Screening 
committee who has a brother with Down syndrome, very, very smart lady, very pro-choice. I'm really hoping that she can move it forward. And um, Professor Tom Shakespeare, who's Professor of um, Disability at UEA, as I said, he's been publishing on this subject since 1989. Again, he's very firmly pro-choice, despite having a congenital and acquired disability and two disabled kids. Um, So yeah, it's kind of over to other people. And I'm back to a position of just, I hope, celebrating um, celebrating our people and and trying to change culture because I think I've given up hope that government will change things and so now you're back to just um, trying to get the message out there that uh, life with a disability is not a life that is not worth living sorry it's too double negative but a life with a disability is worth living it's not um, doesn't prevent happiness that we love our children our children have meaningful lives and there are other ways of seeing what life is for than just uh, getting A-levels and earning huge amounts of cash. I mean, look at President Trump. <laughs> All the advantages money could buy. And yet I think, you know, there are things one could say about President Trump not living his life ideally, yeah. <laughs> you know. And on that note, much to my regret, we are out of time because I could talk to you about this all day. But thank you for being honest and open and vulnerable and personal and, and reflecting with us on the sacred. you for listening to this episode of the sacred we'd really love to know what you think you can get in touch via twitter which is at sacred underscore podcast or email us at the sacred podcast at gmail.com we'd also love to ask a favor if you're enjoying the series and you think it's important that we have big questions about difference we'd love to enlist your help to spread the word please think about posting a review or rating us on itunes or any other of your favorite podcast providers share on social media and tell your friends finally if you'd like to know more about the work of theos or come to one of our central london events you can connect via our website at theosthinktank.co.uk